0: I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, oh.
1: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Out of world, bambole out. Out of world, bambole out. Spoiler alert. And welcome to Spoiler Alert episode 46
0: for August. I'm Simon and I miss you, Roddy. Uh, also, I've just discovered that Short
1: Round turned turned 44. <laughs> uh, I feel so old. Yeah, I know that's older than me. Wow, that yeah. is old. Uh, I'm Duncan and seeing my good friend and co-host Simon as a Conan the Barbarian fan, I'm hoping that his autobiography will be titled "The Lamentations of the Woman." <laughs> <laughs> It's a terrible pun I came up with. I also miss uh, Roddy Piper, though. It was really sad, obviously. He's the yeah. man who does um, the voice, the grab at the beginning. And it was interesting to see how much that grab was plastered all over like social media Yeah, yeah after totally. He, after he died.
0: Yeah, it's like the thing he'll be remembered for, the one line he'll be remembered <laughs> for. Yeah. yeah, incredible.
1: So, um, look, moving on, what have you been watching? Well, I ended the International Film Festival with uh, three films. When we recorded the last podcast, we yep. were kind of just at the beginning of the film yeah, we'll festival. Now, the standout of the whole festival was The Wolf Pack. It's a captivating documentary, achieving all the intimacy, honesty and surprise of something like Capturing the Freedmen's. It shows the lives of seven brothers kept virtual hostages by their parents in an apartment in the Lower East Side of Manhattan for nearly 20 years. Yet the children escaped their prison by recreating their favourite movies, especially Tarantino's work, creating their own costumes, props and typing their own scripts. Uh, It's a remarkable story, and we were lucky enough to have the director on hand to answer many, many questions from the admiring audience afterwards. Uh, Yeah, and it was quite incredible. She uh, she's quite young, and um, she had been filming them for four and a half years. Yeah. She talked about how difficult the editing was, especially the first uh, kind of quarter, which when you watch the film, you'll realize, yeah, that's where the film really, uh, its power lies is, is the way it opens. I saw Best of Enemies. There's a blisteringly witty account of the progressive Gore Vidal taking on conservative William F. Buckley in a series of wildly acerbic and acidic television debates that make Frost Nixon look like a dull tea party. Uh, It's really, really good, and um, those two just hated each other, absolutely hated. And when William F. Buckley died, they asked Gore Vidal for what what, uh, he thought, and he said, uh, rest in hell. <laughs> we we talked about doing this one when it was the last podcast actually, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, very good. The Mafia Only Kills in Summer, which was an Italian comedy at the film festival, about the mafia told from the viewpoint of a child in Sicily and how uh, La Cosa Nostra keep impeding his love life. Now, I can recommend this funny and surprisingly moving tribute to the judges and policemen who who helped rein in the seemingly unstoppable influence of the mafia over the eighties and nineties. And in a similar vein, I saw the gentle La Nostra Terra, which had a group of wannabe farmers trying to harvest reclaimed mafia land, but they have to fight corruption and the imprisoned dons vast reach. Not to be outdone, the six-hour Best of youth Mm. also touches on the mafia, but with a much wider scope on Italy's recent history, from the Florence floods of the 60s to domestic terrorism in the 70s and through to mob takedowns of the 90s. Best of Youth tells a tale of two brothers split by distance and communication and finding themselves on different sides of political turbulence. Both tragic and positive, the film has some really wonderful performances in it. And also the 70s Italian comedy mega-hit. This outperformed Jaws in 1975 in Italy. That's how big it was. Amici Mi'i, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong about a group of middle-aged men with respectable professions and established families who join together and act out elaborate pranks, from slapping passengers as the train leaves the station to pretending to prepare a clueless village for demolition to staging gangster massacres. It is an anarchic yet gentle film with some hilarious moments. It's really quite life-affirming, and they had two successful sequels and starred Adolfo Cilli, best known as Largo in the 60s James Bond film Thunderball. I also saw Pacific Heights, 1990's first eviction thriller, as a critic memorably called it. Uh, It garners its entertainment from just how ridiculous and preposterous it's willing to be as tenant Michael Keaton goes full psycho to landlords Melanie Griffith and Matthew Modine. Modine's character has to be the dumbest, most frighteningly reactionary hero, supposedly, I've seen in a long time. He is terrible. Like, you look at him and you just go, you're a moron. Like, yeah. All of this is going to come yeah. back on you. What are you doing? Scorsese's love letter to cinema, Hugo. And the always entertaining Ali provides all the reason you need to watch The Trials of Muhammad Ali as he battles the US government and public opinion during the 60s. And I saw a tragic true story of a blimp crashing in the Arctic Circle. The Red Tent has a powerful Peter Finch performance and the bleakest snow death scene The side of alive. Yeah, you've got me there, actually.
0: That sounds fa- yeah. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of snow death, so I'll be saying,
1: <laughs> no, no, but seri- that story. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's a, It's a fantastic story, and it's really, really tragic, and just, it's all true, and the tragedy, people die, and then people go and searching for them die, and then people searching for them oh. die, it's just so bleak, <laughs> and they're all, it's not like they crashed on a mountain like an Alive, they crashed on moving ice, so it's continually shifting and disintegrating. Right. So, yeah, it's really, really grim, but really well done. And Peter Finch is great in it. He's really good. And thanks to James Dillon, I watched the startling, brutal, and confronting kill list about a hitman falling under the spell of a cult. I'm sure mm-hmm. you've seen it. and you, I have seen it. And you enjoy it? I did. I remember you speaking about it on one of the uh, podcasts yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of fun. It, it really sticks in your mind. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I saw Leviathan sparse and sad Russian tale of institutionalized corruption and the eradication of small communities uh, in Russia. it's pretty, pretty bleak, as mm. you can imagine, a uh, beautifully shot though, really beautifully shot. And to brighten things up a little bit, after all this bleak death and, and uh, desolation, yeah. two comedies: the French comedy "Welcome to the North," where a post office manager is punished by his company, not by being fired, but by being sent to the north of France. <laughs> and uh, the opening is particularly strong, uh, falling a little mirthless in the second act, but picking up to finish strongly as well. And finally, Death at a Funeral, the English comedy that hits some comedic heights but doesn't mind getting into some literal toilet humour. Mm. Yeah, So that was a good way to end the month there. Yeah, great stuff.
0: Okay, look, for me, uh, I saw The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, right. The Metal Years. Nice. Uh, look, a documentary that made me both proud and ashamed to be a metal fan. <laughs> Regular listener, um, Carl Hopkins told me never to be ashamed, by the way. But look, Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne, Lemmy, and Aerosmith all come across as like the wise elder statesmen of rock, especially when compared to young upstarts like the band Faster Pussycat, who are, are still around, by the way. I had a check on Wikipedia. They've just released a new album called The Power and the Glory Hole. <laughs> so, um, yeah, classy stuff, guys. I've got a um, Faster Pussycat. Have album. you? I, I certainly have. I certainly have. Uh, <laughs> look, some amazing interviews, though, especially with Chris Holmes from Wasp. You might have seen this interview before. It's pretty famous. He's floating on a lilo in his pool, just drunk, drunkenly downing vodka from this like bottle. Uh, he's so drunk. And all the time, his mum's like sitting poolside just watching, disdainfully, <laughs> you know, her son ruining himself. Oh. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, look, the Fantastic Four. Every bit as much of a hot mess as you've probably already heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, it reeks of a film that went off the rails uh, from indifferent effects to a bloated first act. Gives way to this severely truncated second act, which is the most interesting part of the film as well. So it's a shame that it's just clenched in. And then this crashingly underwhelming third, in which the villain barely gets any screen time. And I assume he's killed, but who can be sure? Uh, it's, it's confusing. Um, so it's like both overcooked and conversely kind of underdeveloped. The Lodger, Hitchcock's breakthrough silent film, that almost never happened, thanks to a distributor who considered it along with two previously unreleased silent films of his not British enough. <laughs> I think we've talked about this off microphone, haven't we? I think yeah. we have, yeah. Yeah, look, it's incredible to me to think how close Hitch came to not having a career. Yeah. Just because somebody in charge was like, "Ah, oh, this isn't British cinema. Yeah. You know? Um and it's a fantastic film. Eventually his producer organised a critics viewing and the film's stunning reception forced the release of all three of Hitchcock's films that he had made to date. Uh The Lodger is like this really stylish Thriller full of great camera work and 10 sequences. It's really indicative of what's to come. So, uh, on to the film festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. My favourite film festival offering, a black and white Iranian feminist vampire film. So, you yeah. know, how could I resist that? How I, was it? Great. I loved yeah. it. My favourite film of the festival. Wow. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Uh, Turbo Kid. Mm-hmm. Another festival screening. This one, a post-apocalyptic Canadian slash New Zealand co-production. That's kind of like Mad Max meets BMX Bandits. Yeah, I saw the trailer for this. It looked really intriguing. Uh, yeah, it, it certainly does. It is an interesting film. It's kind of It's got a slice of winking comedy and buckets of gore. Um, but I didn't think it was as pacey or as consistently inventive as a film like this needs to be. Yeah. It needs to be really delivering, and I don't think it does. But uh, Lawrence Labeef, I think her name is pronounced, <laughs> <laughs> as the wide-eyed, high-energy love interest, Apple, uh, was just fantastic. I mean, that, right. that woman is a star in the making. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. She really stands out.
1: From from the trailer, she looked uh, yeah like a real character, and also there was lots of uh, head chopping with uh, buzzsaws. I saw a lot oh, of that. that stuff's fun. That <laughs> stuff's fun, but I kind of think you know when you see
0: those films are going for over the top gore. I've seen so much over the top gore. You know, I've seen mm. the braindeads and all of that of the of the world. That you have really got to give me something a little bit special there, and I just yeah. don't think it's enough to. You know, chop a few heads off and.
1: Yeah, or you've got to inject some humour into it in and yeah, it's yeah. kind of way. There was
0: this one beautiful moment where um, someone got stabbed with an umbrella and then they popped the umbrella open. Yeah. And there was a fountain of blood. Nice. And then in slow motion, the, the two leads kissed under their umbrella wow. as blood sort of fell. That's And awesome. it was both beautiful and inventive and gory yeah. and. Uh, it was one of those shots that kind of makes, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Makes the experience worth it.
1: That's what you want to have your romantic horror comedies. Totally. Just <laughs> rains blood.
0: Uh, and the last of my festival flicks was the Lovecraftian Romance Spring. That, and this will probably sound odd coming from me, could have used less Lovecraft and more of the romance. Ooh. Yeah. This is uh, shocking. The romance is actually what made the film work. And the creepy biological stuff, while kind of cool, became a distraction. Uh, specif- specifically as the film tried to um, sort of build some science into it and some explanation and, and spend a lot of time trying to justify. Mm. Uh, worth That's a watch, though.
1: Yeah, it's tricky with, I was thinking about this in regards to other films, it's often tricky when they do try to justify scientifically in films. Yeah. It's a real tightrope of a walk, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Because sometimes you can go, wow, how does this, any of this make sense? And then they're like, okay, we're going to explain how this makes sense. And you're yeah. like, I wish you hadn't. Yeah, it's you know, how it, I felt it, with this film, it, definitely. It, it, it's, being, it's a fickle audience thing. Yeah, and I yeah, do yeah. kind of feel a bit of sympathy with the writer, uh, you know, to kind of go, oh, how much do I give them? Yeah, because ultimately, you know, it doesn't make any sense as well. Yeah. And it's just, Uh, wasting time in many ways. Yeah, it's how artfully you do it, isn't it? Yeah, totally.
0: Press, do you drink very much? Pardon? Do you drink very much? Uh, Yes, I do. I'm a full-blown alcoholic. Just when he's awake. I I drink too much.
1: Okay. Why do you drink that much?
0: Uh, Because I enjoy it.
1: Do you think rock and roll lifestyle turns you into an alcoholic?
0: Yes, it does.
1: How much of that Uh, do you drink a day?
0: Uh, about five pints. A vodka? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> if you can tour one year, uh, it'll take four years off your life.
1: You think you might be covering up some pain?
0: Ah, uh, yeah.
1: Okay. And so, Simon, what's
0: the news? Well, look, about a year ago, I came across the stunning posters for an upcoming horror flick called Nurse 3D. Uh, The images of actress Paz de la Herta frequently naked but bathed in bright red blood against the purest of white backgrounds or in a skin-tight nurse's uniform, quite unlike anything I've encountered in the health service, riding (laughs) a giant syringe as if um, modelling to be spray-painted on the side of a Second World War flying fortress, were captivating. So could the film live up to its startling artwork? How would I know? I haven't seen it. It seemed to disappear, to fall through the cracks somehow. Perhaps because it's terrible. Uh, certainly lead Paz De La thinks so, because now she's suing for the princy sum of $55 million. Oh. Yeah, claiming that the rotten film has ruined her career. Uh, I'm not sure what her career was doing beforehand. Yeah. Uh, it's perhaps not helped that the apparently sleepy delivery is not De La Herta's, but is in fact another actress who had to revoice parts of her dialogue. Yeah. Really? Parts. I mean, how the hell does that work? How do you revoice parts <laughs> but leave other parts, you yeah. know, in there? I'm not sure. I must want to watch this film to find out. Mm. But if Paz gets her way as part of a suit, they'll redub her voice back into the
1: film. Um, I
0: suspect she's not going to win, though, so.
1: No. $55 or
0: million dollars and a
1: recut. Yeah, that's a bit of a push. She's going to end up like um, the woman in uh, Singing in the Rain, you know? Yeah, yeah. She's suddenly like, <laughs> I can talk, and she's like, <laughs> ing, ing. yeah. Well, like where but... Millie Vanilli tried to sing at that uh, press conference. Do you remember uh, that? One of them became a singer, right? Eh? Perhaps. I mean, the
0: other one killed himself, but yeah. one of them actually had a... Yeah. 50-50. Oh, we're we have task a <laughs> We're got 80s I, and dark. Yeah, yeah. But I do love the fact you think suing is the um, answer here. Yeah. Like that's going to improve your career.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of drawing attention to it. You just think you want it to die and, okay, I'll look. look, I'll move on and I'll, yeah. I won't make such a mistake next time.
0: Well, I mean, she's not going to have a career,
1: but it's killing the film as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. It's a Great story. Got excited for Neil Blomkamp's Alien 5? Well, I have two words for you. One of those two words is two. As in Prometheus 2, Ridley Scott has decided that the toxic waste dump of illogicality that was his last Alien release needs a follow-up. Whether he decides to address all the issues viewers and critics alike held with it remains to be seen. But he has called shotgun on the Alien franchise, so even though Blomkamp's interpretation is gaining more momentum and excitement than Scott's, he has pulled the seniority card, and the District 9 director's film will follow Ridley's 2017 film, probably in 2018.
0: Does this matter? I mean, which order they come in, or
1: well, this is the thing. From what I've been reading, like Blomkamp's thing is like everyone's excited about it. Studios are excited about it. Social media is excited about it, and then Ridley's gone. Oh, hold on! I think they're trying to tie up the uh, the history and right yeah, the mythology. The mythology because yeah, we desperately want that. Uh, um, but also what's interesting, I guess, is rumoured that he was going to excise everything after Aliens, but apparently that's not happening anymore. So, oh, okay. So you'll know that uh, Alien Resurrection, you know, thankfully will be held true right. in the canon, because it's very important. Oh. And probably Alien vs. Predator Requiem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Zoinks! If you were thinking, Scooby-Doo, where are you? Don't panic. He's coming back. After two moderately successful semi-live-action films, Partly written by Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn, which I didn't realise. Uh, the team are firing up the mystery machine for another attempt to find out who's haunting the old mine, or something. Um, yeah. It'll be the caretaker, I think. Yeah. Uh, honestly, this isn't news that's greatly interesting to me. Uh, except that the plan is to make this part of a... Wait for it. Wait for it, everyone. Expanded Scooby-Doo universe. Yes! Yes! Well, to be fair, an expanded Hanna-Barbera universe, which I guess means uh, Fred Flintstone could appear. The Jetsons yeah. might become involved. Was Top Cat um, part of that? Was uh, he you know maybe yeah. Hong Kong Fury. Yeah, um, Huckleberry Hound. Huckleberry Hound. Yeah, All yeah. the big guns. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Look, as long as Captain Caveman shows up. Yeah, because
1: um, I always love that guy. Captain Caveman. Yeah, if he's there, I'm good. Awesome. Who would play him? It'd be Bobcat Goldway in a former life, uh, but now. Yeah, but not now. Yeah, probably Zach Galifianakis or someone. Yeah, actually, perfect. <laughs> in the latest trailer, the last girl appears to be taking cabin-in-the-woods baton and running with it. When modern-day teenagers are transported into an 80s horror film, they have to survive all of the genre's best excesses and worst cliches right through to the final reel. Uh, it also has a surprising amount of heart from what I've seen in the trailer, and just like an 80s horror film, you can already guess the ending. But the journey should be stacked with knowing laughs, I think. Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to
0: this. Yeah, so yeah, am I. the trailer's quite nice. Um, yeah. I've heard good things about it, too. Yeah. It seems to be just perfectly pitched. Yeah, and I think I'm people hoping. are probably
1: in the mood for it. It seems veering more towards comedy than yeah. horror and maybe not quite as uh, too cool for school as *Kevin yeah. in the Woods is, even though I really like *Kevin the Woods. Yeah, I really liked it yeah, as well. yeah. yeah, yeah. It had that kind of Joss Whedon air of superiority to yeah. it, probably. Yeah. And this yeah. one feels like it's probably a little bit more fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping so. I mm. eh? really look good to it. And uh, finally, in... Jane Got a Gun news. Oh, fa- you fantastic. Remember, you remember Jane Got a Gun? Yeah. Um, that's the Natalie Portman film I reported on in 2014. <laughs> uh, the one whose director walked off set the day before shooting was to begin. You remember that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, the one Michael Fassbender walked from. Uh, remember? Mm-hmm. Um, the one Jude Law walked out on? Yeah. That one. Uh, the one Bradley Cooper was cast in, you know, before he left. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the one. Unfortunately for the struggling revisionist Western, the film company overseeing the, I don't know, should we call it a production, um, <laughs> have gone under Right. Yeah, so yeah. they've run out of cash. Uh, however, there is a glimmer of hope. Jane Got A Gun may have escaped the schmozzle that is Relativity Media's financial collapse and is now scheduled for a 2016 release. Um, so, look, as always, we'll get you posted and we remain cautiously... Optimistic. Of course, this is turning into the heaven's gate of the uh, new oh, millennium. I just, I just love reporting on it. I just can't <laughs> resist it. Every time I see it mentioned, I've got, to, I've got to bring it up to you folks. That's
1: great. It's the, the Chinese democracy of, of films. Oh, it really <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of old news, about four years ago, I talked in the spoiler alert news section about a proposed adaptation of Dante's Inferno. It seems that memories are short as it is back on the cards, but everyone seems to think this is a new idea. Following the narrator Dante himself as he travels through all the levels of hell, Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, anger, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery, and Sandler. There is t- <laughs> there is talk about splitting the nine circles into three films, and keeping with modern filmmaking, no doubt the final circle will be split into two films itself. The film is pitched as an epic romance mixed in with supernatural action, as Dante fights through hell for his love. So basically, what dreams may come meets the raid. <laughs> cool. That that's a hell of a pitch. <laughs>
0: I, no, I'm in. Yeah, I went from zero interest to, with your last part, like you should have been in the pitch, pitch <laughs> meeting because I just went from zero interest to like 100% commitment. Yeah. Like on the air, yeah. on opening day, buying a ticket.
1: I think, I think as an executive, I've just made my, you know, I, I've justified my car park space with that. That, meets
0: that, th- that and Zach Galifianakis <laughs> as Captain Caveman. Yeah.
1: Now I can just like sit in the spa pork smoking cigars for the rest of the day. Your, your, your work is done.
0: Tonight the key question for every patriot is can an ageing Hollywood juvenile actor with a right-wing script defeat Richard Nixon, a professional politician who currently represents no discernible interest except his own? And now it's time for No Comps, where we go out and review a new film in release. And this month we watch Trainwreck, directed by Judd Apatow and written by Amy Schumer and starring Amy Schumer. Bill Hader, Brie Larson, Tilda Swinton, LeBron James, and John
1: Cena. Amy is a New York woman with a killer magazine writing job and fun nightlife. Rather than being cocktails with the girls and sex in the city, she gets hammered drunk and takes home an indiscriminate array of men for casual sex. When, during a writing assignment, she meets Bill Hader's high-profile sports doctor, the two begin an unlikely relationship. But can Amy's encoded fear of monogamy be overcome? My feeling is that this is the Amy Schumer show. Really, uh, she wrote the script, cherry picked with
0: events from her own life, and she is the most vital ingredient in the film's success. Uh, she's what makes it unique because, in almost every way, what you get with Trainwreck is a conventional rom-com. Mm. Uh,
1: it's having a character like Amy's at the centre of it that makes it appear to be so refreshing. The the two leads are extremely likable. Schumer is completely at home riffing on her established comedic persona, indulgent, quick-witted party girl with little time for sensitivity. And in casting Bill Hader, it not only gives Schumer a comedic partner her equal, but one who holds scenes without her, and all the more impressive because they're almost exclusively with non-acting athletes. Yeah, Like totally. every scene he's in that's not with yeah, Schumer yeah, is yeah, with yeah. like LeBron James or some other guys, or, you know, some other yeah, basketball players. Yeah. Because as can
0: say, Bill Hader is the doc. Is, he's kind of got this low-key charmingness going on, yeah, which is fantastic. And it, it'd be easy to overlook how good he is, mm. but like you say, he is really holding his own. Well. He's holding a lot of scenes together with non-actors, which is yeah, great work.
1: It is. It's quite impressive, actually. Yeah. The more I thought about that, just the, when he's on with her, you're like, oh, it's just, you know, these guys are gifted comedians, so mm. it's great. Schumer also writes a plum role for Colin Quinn as her father, mm. uh, both repellent and charming. It explains Amy's attitude and sense of humor. Here's a tone-setting opening scene when he explains his desire to be promiscuous in terms his young daughters can understand asking if they would be happy only playing with one doll for the rest of their lives.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. That <laughs> scene uh, was fantastic. Got a really great lo- laugh out of the audience. Yeah. Like, she's good at the comic and the dramatic material, which is uh, which I didn't expect, I guess. Yeah, And, and it's just as well because she is what makes this film unique. I mean, imagine this film without her and minus the kind of vivacious crassness, if you like. Yeah. You know, that she brings to the role. It become completely unrecognisable from any other uh, rom-com because the beats are still there, you know? Yeah. It's just how she plays them that makes it stand out. That's right. Um, like you say, too, so many cameos, huh?
1: Oh, it's, it's a crazy amount of cameos. Yeah.
0: Like uh, um, John Cena... John Cena was pretty hilarious, better than I expected.
1: Brilliant. Actually. Either way, he was
0: really good, actually. Yeah, got a great deal of laughs at the top. Um, you know, the, uh, his attempt to talk, talk dirty <laughs> so, yeah. with protein based euphemism. Protein based <laughs> euphemism. And just like, you look like a dude. Yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, every girl wants to hear that, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. yeah he, he, he was pretty hilarious. Even if I felt scenes, like a lot of scenes in this film, ran a little long.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I kind of felt that the, the film suffers the Apertale crawl in the third act. Totally. And when comedy, for the most part, becomes a secondary concern and pathos takes over, the finale works, reversing the grand tradition of hero who's heroine. This film is essentially knocked up through the looking glass. That's what I felt. Uh, however, without the ticking biological bomb of an impending birth and its natural progression throwing up challenges, the obstacles in the couple's ways are considerably smaller. Well, but with Amy's nature being the crux of the problems between the pair, it's inevitable who and what will be the second act split. Mm. And um but that scene doesn't really have any weight behind it. It's just this kind of slight miscommunication is like Oh yeah. yeah, pretty much. And you like I mean
0: up. it's it's not a bad uh it's not a bad hurdle to throw in the way of characters. No, at I mean, least not on it. paper. Because I mean one of the things we've said and I know I've said plenty of times this with rom coms, the issue is they don't throw enough believable mm. things in the way of the characters getting together. Yeah. And yet I felt this was even if it, as you say, it was kind of a bit uh, softly
1: handled, mm. it is a real you know, oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Flaws, if you like.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a good move. The film really coughs up a couple of early scene stealers, I thought. Tilda Swinton relishing her role <sighs> as a ruthless Cockney magazine editor yeah. who talks like Russell Brand with the attitude of Ray Winstone. Uh, yeah, she was just, yeah. she was great.
0: Yeah, that magazine, Um, I, I, I remember she was pitching different story edits. ugliest celebrity
1: kids under six. <laughs> and, and you know, I can believe that.
0: I can actually yeah. believe a magazine that does it. That's know? right.
1: Yeah, and what's remarkable about this is not so much Amy Schumer's performance, but how her writing seems to have elevated Apatow's game. He always seems re-energized by other people's writing. And after Seth Rogen and Lena Dunham, you can add Schumer to the list. Again, it is needlessly long. How someone yep. didn't convince the director, and They demand he cut a scene with LeBron James, Chris Everett, Matthew Broderick, and a commentator all playing themselves is amazing, especially because the scene insists Bill Hader, of all these actors, play the straight man. Yeah, it's, <laughs> is it, that's amazing to me. I mean, I wrote that down as well. In fact, I'm pretty certain every
0: reviewer probably picked up on that. You know, that's a needless scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, this should have been a 90-minute film. Instead, it's over two hours. Yeah. And uh, if you were looking around to, you know, if you were looking around to find a single scene to to help bring your timing down,
1: yeah. that's the one. Yeah, and also because it's like, okay, so there were these people out, and I'm like, I have no – because I'm an international audience, Yeah. I know LeBron James – and I know him because he's been throughout the film and you've made it. Yeah, he's been well he introduced. And you pretty much know his name. And if you don't watch football, you probably know who Cristiano Ronaldo is. You might not be able to pick him in the line out, but you know his name. So the same thing with LeBron. You're like, okay, I know who this guy mm. is. But Chris Everett, I wouldn't know who she was. No. And Matthew Broderick, I'm like, are you Matthew Broderick? Or are you, a, are you Matthew Broderick playing yeah, a character? Yeah. Because you're not. it's not like you've got Bruce Willis here or yep. Will Smith and you've gone, oh, he's a megastar. It's Matthew Broderick. Yeah,
0: and it's also <laughs> they they mention his name late in the scene, so it's only yeah. then you oh, I felt the same. It's only then you realise, oh, it's Matthew Broderick playing Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Why? Exactly. Yeah. You know, what is he doing in the scene? Yeah. Like I can understand to a point the sports people because mm. that's some um, Hater's job. Matthew Broderick. Yeah. And then they have to throw in a line about his hip or something. So that scene's terrible. That's, that's rank. It's awful. Uh, it's really bad. I mean, I do, I do felt as funny as this film, and it's really funny. It does suffer a bit from one of your pet peeves, Feeling a bit improvy at times. Yeah, and feeling yeah. like um, scenes to stretch on a fraction longer than they needed to.
1: Yeah, it, d- it does tend to, it, it does tend to avoid for large parts the, the kind of awkward scenes or the ad lib shtick just a bit too much. It doesn't go too too no, long no. with them, um, but definitely I felt it more in the third act. I felt like it, had kind of, I was like, this should be wrapping up towards the climax. Instead, we're going into another lull here, yeah, and um, so it just felt, again, the Apatow thing of being maybe like 15 minutes too long or something but um, Schumer's great and I really like yep. to say, I think that um, her likability is everything in this but also her writing is very, very quick yep. there's a lot of one-liners and uh, her, her sister and her sister's family is well done as well um, yeah. and yeah, I just, I thought that she did some really smart stuff in the first half particularly is very, very funny and I kind of, I thought it was particularly strong achievement in big studio rom-coms, like maybe not in indie rom-coms, it's mm. not pushing the envelope, mm. but for something that's a big studio rom-com, yeah. I thought it was quite quite good. And, and what, what do we expect from our rom-coms? You know, and surely it can't be too much more than what Trainwrecks delivers. Oh, no, I think so. I think this is absolutely a by-the-numbers
0: rom-com in certain senses. Mm. Um Can I say it it would have been less crowd-pleasing, but how would it have been if Amy's character didn't change at the end of the film? Mm. You know, that would have been interesting. What if she didn't have an arc, if she didn't learn? Mm. I think uh, it would have felt more believable. Yeah. um, If the film had kind of held its nerve or done that. But I also understand there's a rom-com that would have been pretty unsatisfying to a mainstream audience.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you think that – I think this is her first film. uh, Probably the first film she's written then, And uh, also the end, though, when she's, you know – cleaning up the, cleaning out the bottles of the, you know, cleaning out the booze bottles yeah. and everything out of the fridge. It reminded me of, again, it knocked up Wednesday, Rogen's like, okay, i am throw away my bongs and I'm going to rent my own place and I'm going right, to show them. Right. I'm responsible. And yeah. So it felt very much like that. And that was when, it was only really towards the end where I really, it was really in that last third where I went, oh, that's right, Apatel directed this. That crept right. into my head when I was watching the film. And in the first half, I just thought, Amy Schumer wrote this. It's great. Yeah, yeah, and then I kind of felt like at the end. Oh, ah, right. That's it. an
0: interesting thought. Yeah.
1: So, but yeah, I mean, as far as rom-coms go, um, you know, it's it's very pleasing, and I I really enjoyed it, and I think uh, it's great for Amy Schumer. You know. Yeah. And great. I think it brought out the best in Apatel for you know, seeing as he's done some pretty ordinary, you know, this is 40 and funny people and things like that lately.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to use return uh, words like return to form, but this is a real solid. Yeah. Yeah. Solid outing for him. Yeah. I don't know what your mother told you but let me explain it from my side, in terms you can understand. You got your doll, right? You got your doll there. Yeah. You love your doll? Yeah. Yes. But what if I told you that was the only doll you were allowed to play with the rest of your life? How would you feel? Sad. You'd feel sad, of course. There's other dolls you like, and they're making new dolls every year. You want a stewardess doll? Yeah. yeah. What about a slightly overweight cocktail waitress doll? Mm -hmm. What about a doll who happens to be best friends with your main doll? Yeah. Yeah. It could happen, right? Yeah. What about a doll you only play with one day and never see again? Yeah. So that's why me and mom are getting divorced. Let's talk about sex. Bad sex. Stupid sex. Embarrassing sex. Not the romantic, sensual love scenes of your favorite Hollywood movies, but the disastrous and often entertaining couplings that turn erotic encounters into awkward encounters. Uh, That's what we're celebrating
1: in our top five ridiculous sex scenes. If you've never had sex, you may get the completely wrong idea of what its function or purpose is from watching 1995's Showgirls. Also, if you've never had sex, you may have written 1995's Showgirls. (laughs) Because you're more likely to want to have sex walking out of a graphic public information film on STDs than after witnessing Paul Verhoeven's legendary Dirty Bomb. Reminiscent of Natasha Henstridge sex killing her prey and species, upwardly mobile showgirl Elizabeth Berkeley has the most uncomfortable swimming pool intercourse with Kyle McLaughlin. Less sex, more an exorcism, like the pool water is holy and the power of McLaughlin is compelling the demons out of Berkeley via her vagina.
0: Oh, there's, that film is like, you know, when you um, hear about a film that's got this terrible, terrible reputation, and, but it also has a reputation for being a camp treat. Mm. This film is not that film. Yeah, it's just terrible. It's actually hard to watch. I watched it in like about three
1: settings just to
0: say, hey, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen Showgirls. Yeah, I found it difficult.
1: I did the same. I watched it in two settings, and they were like six months apart. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I could believe that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's
0: not by any measure an entertaining film. Um, even in it's not one of those so bad it's good, despite the fact that people think so.
1: Yeah, I I do think that Verhoeven thinks like that is kind of quite over the top. Like, yeah. I think it's kind of like a you know, a James Bond action scene. Like, it's just pushing the envelope of physics and ridiculousness. It's like, well, we know no one has sex like this. This isn't even really, you know, human interaction. This is just (laughs) craziness.
0: Look, it's a short but sweet scene that introduces the star of the film that I will take any opportunity I can to talk about. Black Dynamite. Uh, And it's one of my favourite ludicrous sex scenes. Uh, We start with a POV view of three women seen from above in the throes of passion Clearly enjoying the best sex I've ever had. Then we cut to Black Dynamite himself, as seen from the POV of all three of the women. Uh, Dynamite is somehow managing to pleasure three women simultaneously—a uh, feat that would appear just physically impossible if this was was anyone other than Black Dynamite. <laughs> Immediately we cut to Dynamite in one of a superfly $100 suits, uh, putting on a series of flashy gold rings. Dynamite, that was the best loving I've ever had," says the first of his lovers. Me too, says the second. That goes triple for me, says the third. Black Dynamite just tells them to shut up because otherwise they'll wake up the, uh, all the other bitches. <laughs> and then for the first time we see a wide shot of Black Dynamite's bed, gold sheets wrapped around, just like a pile up of ladies. <laughs> that's Black Dynamite for you folks. And that's a perfect introduction to a very funny, very loving parody of the, a very loving parody of the black exploitation genre. I've really got to watch this film. you really got to watch it. Yeah. No, it's great. And that uh, opening scene
1: is just like... <laughs> impossible but wonderful (laughs) that's brilliant look it's easy to beat up on tommy with execrable cult classic the room people laugh at everything from unnecessary green screen rooftop balconies to the worst games of sport ever played the whole thing comes across like artificial life with all the ram of a zx81 trying to replicate human emotion and nowhere is this more apparent disturbing and hilarious than in the sex scenes as in a quiz that I did the, the other week, I discovered there have only been two men to direct themselves to Best Actor Oscars. But there is only one man to have directed himself to naked international humiliation. And that's Tommy Wiseau, giggling with his girlfriend while the camera largely ignores her and gravitates towards his nude body writhing slowly, with four poster beds billowing white sheer curtains around the room. The coup de grace is Wiseau dragging a red rose across his partner's face and body for endless cycles of red rose dragging. It's like he did seven takes of it, and instead of picking the best one, he just dissolved between every single take of them. <laughs> Ladies love that. Yeah. It's, uh, it, and there's about three sex scenes, so, and it just seems like it's right. the same sex scene, but maybe we'll just flop the shot. It's, it's crazy.
0: I haven't seen the Smith film. Well, there you go. Yeah, well, both films we haven't seen. Hey. Look <laughs> at that. That's right. The 1987 horror cheese fest Rock and Roll Nightmare has given me so much to enjoy. John McKill Thor's inexplicable transformation from bodybuilding rock god to literal god, Mm -hmm. his co-star's terrible working-class Liverpool accent that also inexplicably changes to an American accent, the van that drives forever and never seems to go anywhere, Uh, the deserted house in the middle of nowhere with traffic clearly visible driving past in the background, (laughs) and of course the horribly cheap and horribly overambitious special effects. But nothing tops the grim side of Thor and his girlfriend getting it on in the saddest Ugliest cinematic shower scene this side of Schindler's List. (laughs) The shower head is the first sign that we're in for trouble. Uh, That tiny, forlorn, droopy, plastic shower head that seems to promise an experience no one will enjoy. Least of all those who have to watch, Thor and his girlfriend getting it on beneath this half-hearted dribble. Rock and Roll Nightmare isn't afraid of a spot of nudity. Indeed, we see Thor pouring in his girlfriend's breasts as if he were pumping one of those little red balls you squeeze while you're donating blood. But as writer, producer and star, John Thor is way more interested in making sure we get to see his naked body. His vast soapy pecs, his lump and wet butt cheeks grasped gamely by his coaster. <laughs> Regrettably, this is also one of those movie makeout sessions with lots of tongue action. Uh, honestly, I forced myself to watch the scene again before the podcast and struck <laughs> by how close in the camera got. Uh, apparently being elbowed out of the way at one point because it was just <laughs> pushing into class. Right in on Thor, ramming his tongue in his girlfriend's mouth and then flicking it around like a snake in the like the least erotic manner possible. And all the time, that pathetic, sad little showerhead squirts him with only three jets at its disposal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just the way that like several of them are obviously clogged up, you know? It's just a it's probably a really like clever metaphor. For something, something, yeah.
0: yeah. And look, also, spoiler (laughs) alert here, folks, because you're not going to watch this film if you haven't already. It turns out that all the characters apart from Thor were illusions summoned by his supernatural powers to lure out the demonic forces he battles in the insanely lame final fight scene, which means I think that Thor was actually alone in that (laughs) 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 shower. So
1: he was playing with himself? I think he was. That's nasty. I think that's what was happening. Yeah. Well, I guess if he's the director and the writer, he pretty much is playing with himself. Totally. Even, yeah. You know, yeah. He's just a proxy to play with himself. So yeah. Like, no, closer up on me. No closer yeah. up on my butt. Yeah, yeah.
0: See my my butt. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure there's soap stripping down it. That's my tongue.
1: <laughs> oh god. That's a classic roll <laughs> nightmare. That's Fantastic great film. film. If you haven't seen that, listeners, it's worth seeing. It is. That's gold. Well, look, we've been talking about ridiculous funny sex scenes, but from the other side of the spectrum, is Michael Fassbender's tour de force and shame. A sex act that is so regular that it's the normalcy and intimacy that makes it so unbearable for Fassbender's character. This sex addict is so at home partaking in hollow hedonism that real emotional contact is the height of discomfort for him. He isn't even close to real love with this sexual partner, but he is close to real emotional honesty, and this is beyond his capabilities. And the only time, the only time in the movie, when he can't maintain an erection... The encounter is awkward and disturbing for the sadness it encapsulates. His puzzled and humiliated partner, unable to grasp the complexity of conflict in his mind, leaves and he escapes the situation in the only way he knows how, by becoming stimulated once he brings a prostitute to the same hotel room. Right. It is really bleak. And it's the only time in the film when anyone has any honest, emotional, you know, kind of respectful sex, basically. Yeah. And it's not that all the other sex is degrading, but it's that it's completely divorced of any real right. emotional connection yeah. That's, that's that stuck in my mind is like awkward sex scene that's about the height of it wow <laughs> contemplate
0: this on the tree of woe
1: and now we're on to our favorite part of the show your favorite part of the show the tree of woe which we take from conan the barbarian uh in which case his villain and his nemesis the marvelously named thulsa doom punishes him and puts him on the tree of woe to contemplate his crimes. And we do the same each month to a cinematic offender. And who's the person who's offended you the most this month, or the thing? Well, it's not a person, but look, look last month I talked about Terminator Genesis and Jurassic
0: World in the same month. Big budget blockbusters that felt messy, full of dumb, questionable story decisions that didn't get smart answers. And this month I got to see the crashing flop that was the Fantastic Four, uh, which has got me thinking, what is happening to these big tentpole effects-driven blockbusters? You know, th- three in two months, it had real questionable story issues going on. I mean, I know two of those at least have gone on to make big money. Mm. But why are these stories becoming such a mess? Is this a trend? Is there something happening to our Hollywood mega-budget franchises? Or is just some sort of curious blip or coincidence? At first, I thought this was a case of throwing inexperienced directors under the wheels of Titanic-sized blockbusters. In the case of Josh Trank in Fantastic Four, that probably was the case. Uh, all sorts of stories came out about a studio who didn't support a director flailing to find a direction and sinking under the pressure. The film itself feels like a compromise. Way too much set up, an ineffectual climax, and not enough of the freaky body horror stuff that actually made the film interesting. Uh, like Trank, Colin Trevorrow had one feature under his belt before he was handed the keys to a, a CGI-heavy blockbuster franchise in Jurassic World. In one film, yeah. and, and that film was Safety um, Not Guaranteed, which was a small film, mm. really small. Um, look, he seems to build off this assignment given the box office. despite a ropey, problematic script. But then what of the steaming mess that is Terminator <laughs> Genesis Directed by a veteran in Alan Taylor who helmed the Thor sequel and a whole bunch of TV before that. How did that script go so wrong? Mm. Uh, so in the end, I don't know what happened. Who does? Perhaps they suffered from too much pandering to fans. Certainly the Jurassic Park and Terminator sequels are full of fan service. Uh, perhaps they were driven by unrealistic release dates or meddling producers, or endless rewrites. It's a mystery to me, but it's one that's hurting these big-budget reboots and sequels. So until Hollywood can get their script ducks in a row, I think they need to have a good hard think about what they're trying to accomplish. And I've got just the placement to do
1: that, just that. <laughs> it is interesting. Um, you'd think that they would try and get some of the more successful character that that marry character and action quite well together. Yeah. Like I was thinking of um you know Inside Out the Pixar film. Mm. That's smart on so many levels Mm. and but never at the sacrifice of entertainment or action or humor. You know, like it's you can admire as in unison with it. Not, you know, at the you know, not abandoning it. But I guess the other side to this is that two of those three films have done
0: big business. Yeah. Huge business in some cases. They'll both get sequels. So there's not a problem, is there? No. And there, there's a problem as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But as far as Hollywood as as far as people making these films are concerned, there's no problems. Um, except on Fantastic Four's case. But
1: Well, yeah, I mean the thing is that uh, Jurassic Park and uh, Terminator have got all these other films behind them, successful films. Yeah. You know, almost uh, decade defining films in some yeah. of their cases. Whereas Fantastic Four is just struggling time and again. It's like we're gonna reboot, we're gonna reboot, yeah, we're gonna reboot, yeah. so, oh my god, this is like the third yeah. I think it's the fourth film, yeah. And the it's third not just like in Goodwill or anything. No, either. and it's not even like you know Spider-Man, where they're like, "Oh, my, Amazing Spider-Man one and two maybe didn't quite do quite good, but one, two, and three, Sam Raimi's versions did Gangbusters." So it's like, totally you know, they can, yeah. oh, we, it does work. Mm. Fantastic Four is just yeah, continuing this mire of, yeah. Uh, they keep trying to dig it out, but yeah. yeah, maybe they need to go back to Marvel. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be maybe. the only ones who are doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, they've got the uh, formula locked up.
1: Yeah. Our movie of the month, Trainwreck, shares a terrible thing in common with The Dark Knight Rises. Both had screenings that were targeted by gunmen. And in the wake of these increasing shootings in America, there was talk about proportionally increasing security in U.S. cinema chains. A statement by a consumer insight group, C4, was chilling in its corporate speak and more than a little passive-aggressive, saying that moviegoers would pay extra for security because they'd value their safety the same way they value 3D or IMAX. But the large U.S. cinema chain Regal says that their security measures would fall short of metal detectors but go to bag checks. So if you have a gun tucked into your shorts, no problem. Simply avoid carrying a bag. But it's the cost that has dictated the headline news. Front and center from the advisors to the chains to the media is the news that it may cost between one or three more dollars in the U.S. to purchase a movie ticket have your bags checked by people who, and as a former employee of a major cinema franchise I can speak from experience here, have absolutely no idea what they're doing when it comes to reading a crowd. Hell, it's difficult enough to even stop people from taking hot food into a theatre. I don't know how you're going to stop them taking guns in there. Adding to the arbitrary nature of the discussion is the news that, apparently, 46% of people are happy paying $1 more for their ticket for enhanced security, while only 19% of that same people are happy to pay $3 more. So assuming the surveyed person thinks that these measures are effective, they value $2 more than their own lives. This would seem to a plebeian like me to also lead the cinema chain down a path of irreversible escalation of security as the years progress and the crimes continue, but also one of implied responsibility when an incident does occur. If you're explicitly paying for security and they fail to protect you, then it would seem like they are derelict in duty. But then again, these chains are canny enough to protect themselves, if not the cinema-goer they're planning to overcharge for meaningless searches. So Craze Gunman may be low-hanging fruit for the tree of woe. (laughs) So instead, I'll say what should be rational, clever responses, but instead turn out to be poorly thought-out, knee-jerk reactions to Craze Gunman will be spending time on the tree, enough time to think of better solutions to this worrying and violent situation. Man, I'm so glad that uh, we live in the country we do. I know. I know. It's just incredible, isn't it? Yeah. But unless you put metal detectors in there, I don't know how anything else. And then you're also going to – you're going into this profiling thing. They were talking about the popular news now straight out of Compton is number one in the States for a couple of weeks running. And apparently Universal agreed to put extra security uh, on showings. Now, to me, that's a kind of a profiling it of a totally culture. It totally is, isn't it? And there, uh, as far as I know, there, haven't been inc- there certainly hasn't been incidents where people are walking in and shooting 12 people. Yeah,
0: because let me ask you, if you were to uh, just like, let's profile a movie, a romantic
1: comedy starring Amy Schumer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I
0: mean, yeah. you wouldn't
1: pick that, would you? I mean, if you no. were to be... No. I mean, even the Dark Knight Rises, uh, you might guess alone. They had They had an incident, Mad Max... Fury Road. But apparently, that guy didn't even have a gun. He had like a machete and some mace spray or something. Right. So right. it's
0: like, well, where does it end? You know? Probably wasn't even mace. It was probably that silver spray. <laughs> it was silver spray. Yeah. And it was, oh, what a lovely day. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah was that was that. Yeah. I'm oh, just witnessing.
1: <laughs> Spoiler alert.
0: And that was uh, podcast 46, is it? It's 46, yeah. yes. So, Duncan, what was your movie for the month?
1: Well, my movie for the month was one I watched at the beginning of the month, and that was The Wolf Pack. Absolutely. Right. Um, best documentary I've seen for quite a while, and uh, just have you riveted from the beginning. It's really lovely human story, really unusual, uh, really well told. It's just, it's just great all around, so definitely check it out. I'm sure it will be on uh, major release. I'm sure it will play at Rialto or something, and you'll you know, probably on Rialto Channel soon enough as well. So yep. yeah, get, get, if you get a chance, to check it out, The Wolf Pack. Yeah. And what about you?
0: Uh, look, A uh, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, just a, a charming, gorgeous, monochrome poem of a film. Uh, it was my favourite film of the festival and my favourite film in a little while actually. Really loved it.
1: Oh, that's awesome. That's great that they're both from the festival. Yeah. And that's yeah. really encouraging. Um, You know, seeing as, as we did a festival film last month and it was, we, we both really enjoyed it as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, There were some real treats this year in the festival. So totally. well, that's great. Okay. uh, So join us on Facebook. We're always mm-hmm. on there posting stuff. Uh, we will have... Halloween movie night will be coming out soon, right? Yeah. Yes. I'll start dropping some hints about that. Yeah And that will be at uh, Spoon Studios in Ponsonby Mm -hmm. and um, On Halloween night itself by the way. Yeah, which is great. It's the first time this happened I think Uh, might have happened once before I I think maybe right at the beginning. Yeah. 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 Yeah Yeah, That's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah And so the track we're going out to um, Well, a song the song Mm. is heavy and train wreck the Amy Schumer film Um, Bill Hader sings it when he's operating yep. on people kind of it's, it's almost yep, a bit, big fan yeah it, it's almost it almost reminds me of like american psycho when he's singing to like huey lewis in the <coughs> news when <laughs> yeah, he's like yeah, chopping yeah. people up yeah um but yeah um but they use the billy joel original uptown girl but we're doing um we're using the cover from the me gimme give uh doing uptown girl yep yep absolutely
0: look in the film they mentioned that it's like the worst billy joel song uh I would have given that to we We Didn't Start the Fire personally. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that song. <laughs> um so that's an interesting point. But yeah, this song is uh obviously important in the film, but we couldn't dare play you <laughs> Billy Joel's version. <laughs> you
1: can hunt that out. Uh so thanks everyone for listening. we'll see you next month. Yes. Cheers. Cheers.